I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Welcome to the LRB podcast. I'm your host, Adam Schatz. My guest today is Jesse McCarthy, the author of an arresting new book of essays on black literature, art, and politics, who will pay reparations on my soul. Jesse is a professor of English and African American studies at Harvard. He's also an editor at The Point, where many of the essays first appeared. His first novel, Fugitivities, will be published in June. Jesse is one of the most elegant and incisive writers on black diasporic culture today, steeped in history and tradition, but equally conversant in contemporary culture, from the art of Kara Walker and Ken Day Wiley to hip-hop and trap music. Jesse, thanks for joining us today on the LRB podcast. Hi, Adam. Thanks. It's really great to be with you. Now, you can't tell a book from its cover, but the cover of your book is, in fact, a succinct and expressive guide to your preoccupations. I'd like to start by asking you about the haunting image of Juan de Pareja, a former slave who became a painter uh, by Velazquez. Tell us a little bit about this Juan de Pareja. So Juan de Pareja was an assistant, but also an assistant to Velazquez, but also an enslaved person of African descent working in Spain, originally from Sevilla. And, you know, I first came across, I would say, his image at the Met. Uh, There's this absolutely magnificent portrait of de Pareja that, uh, you can go see in in the Met uh, in New York City. Hopefully, once it's open again, or maybe it is open again. It is. Um, and so it's an image that I'd actually seen before, um, but never really thought that much about, or sort of fully considered and taken the implications of. And in a sense, I think didn't really understand what I was looking at when I was looking at that painting. But it's always sort of stayed with me it was sort of in the back of my mind. I think, uh, I won't say that it haunted me. That would be to, to overstate things, but it lingered there in my mind. And eventually I came around to wanting to know more about who the subject was of this great Velasquez painting that that's here in New York city. And that led me down a, a you know, a path of research and discovery and um, fundamentally what it, made me realize was just how terribly ignorant I was about Black diasporic life in Spain, particularly in the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, when in fact there was this incredibly rich culture and there was an enormously large population of enslaved Africans um, who were in the process of forging a kind of diasporic culture Uh, It was deeply infused with Catholicism, and it was a very complicated world, right, in which uh, there were many different uh, ways of experiencing enslavement. In many ways, de Pareja would have been someone who was experiencing, in a sense, a kind of quote-unquote more privileged position in the sense that he was, you know, assistant to Velasquez, which meant that he had a kind of a lifestyle within the court because Velasquez was very much a court painter. But at the same time, of course, he was regarded by the standards of the time as someone who had no business being an artist. And in in the way that, for example, we understand the phrase liberal arts, uh, the arts were reserved for, you know, for libres, for free persons. And so initially, even though De Pereja was an extraordinarily able assistant, and even though he made it quite clear that he himself was interested in painting, that was sort of an uh, an absolute no. Up until 
um, and they're sort of, you know, I think some of these stories are somewhat apocryphal, but they're stories that essentially, you know, one day, you know, the, you know, Velasquez, the master comes in and sort of sees the work and, you know, realizes how talented this, this assistant is, but also they travel together on a trip uh, to Rome and Velasquez has a, a papal commission. And allegedly the painting that we have is actually intended originally as a study but it, it turned into such a, a kind of masterwork. For whatever reason, Velasquez put such a kind of fine touch to it that upon seeing it, uh, you know, there was this sort of great acclamation and everyone was curious about who the, the sitter was, who the subject was. Upon learning that it was his enslaved assistant, uh, they recommended that he be released and, and Velasquez did eventually manumit him. And so he acquired his freedom and outlived Velasquez and was a painter in his own right. And I think in a sense, you know, this was actually for me the kind of hinge, the turning point that really drew me into this story was because I think initially I, even though I understood that he was a black subject of Velasquez's mm-hmm. artistry, I didn't understand that Pereira himself was an artist, was a painter. And the fact that he um, was himself a painter really fascinated me. And so it led me naturally to ask the question, well, what, what was his art like? You know, how did he understand what it meant to, to paint and to make art as someone who had had the life trajectory that he had? How do I... And to make art within the school of the man who had been his owner. Absolutely. Absolutely, right? Like very much in the shadow of the master and in more senses than one. Because of course, Velasquez is is literally his master in the sense of owning him as property, but is also, you know, a master in the sense of, you know, the master craftsman uh, in the sense of making a masterpiece, you know, one of the world's great painters. And so, uh, you know, that kind of critical problem became fascinating to me. How do I read uh, painting by De Pereja? How do I make sense of it? How do I evaluate it um, as a contemporary critic in this moment? And um, that sort of led to the subject, the meditation, if you will, of the first essay in this collection. And, and the title of this essay, which is a really brilliant meditation on the relationship of Black diasporic art to Western culture, is The Master's Tools, which is an allusion to Audre Lorde's famous remark that you can't destroy the master's house uh, using the master's tools. And you put forward, I think, a a subtly subversive critique of that notion. Yeah, I think that's right. I'll say this. I think that it's important to see those, you know, this extremely famous quote by Audre Lorde in context. And in its context, you know, Lorde is really discussing some of the uh, specific problems that she's encountering when she's in spaces where as a black woman and as a lesbian and as an activist, she would expect, and in particular in in the context of of these remarks, which I believe were originally given in 1977, I might be mistaken, but it's, it's, it's right in there. It's in the late seventies at a conference that was largely attended by white feminists which is sort of the most immediate audience, not the only audience, but the most immediate audience for these remarks. She's talking about the ways in which the the feminist movement of the time, which was largely, certainly in her view, dominated by white women, and therefore the interests and agendas and sort of political orientations of that particular demographic. She felt that they, while they wanted to emancipate themselves from certain aspects had not sufficiently interrogated some of the ways in which they were in fact still invested in reproducing um, capitalist and patriarchal structures and racial ideology. Exactly. And so, you know, I think taken in that context and, you know, and understood in that light, you know, Audre Lorde is making a very, very important critique. In a way, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, I'm trying, I'm thinking a little bit about how I regard some of the binds that I think we find ourselves in in the contemporary moment. I think we're in a slightly different moment now than we were in the 1970s. And, you know, I think there's a lot of healthy debate about this. And, you know, I'm mostly interested 
in a, in a sense with this collection, even in general, in creating and generating more conversations and more debates. I'm not, uh, you know, interested in enforcing people to a view or trying to say that everyone should think as I do. But I do think that it's my sense that there are sometimes people who seem to chafe at the notion that um, anything or any tradition that doesn't, you know, line up completely with sort of the positionality that you already inhabit is to be treated well, certainly a suspect, which might be fair enough, but also potentially as something to be discarded, ejected, or rejected. And I think actually there's a great deal of subversive power in taking just the opposite tack on that. And in a sense, though, it's complicated because, and this is why the story with Depere was particularly interesting to me. You know, um, what I say in the piece is that when I investigated Depere's painting, one of my initial reactions was actually one of kind of disappointment because I was looking at these paintings and I think I was, I was invested affectively and emotionally in wanting them to do something and wanting to see in them some kind of resistance, some kind of way in which he was grappling with his, his former master and kind of his subjecthood. That's right. His subjecthood. And I, 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 you know, I sort of imagine, I don't know what I imagined, but I, I think I was hoping secretly inside to feel something like that. And that's not what I found. And so my initial reaction to the paintings was a kind of disappointment in them. But the more I actually spent time educating myself, the more I spent time learning about the communities that he actually inhabited, the codes and the ways in which in that particular time and place, people were thinking about and rethinking, for example, Christianity and Christian iconography. This is a time when, for example, um, the church uh, incorporates for the very first time black saints, right? And so this is all, there was all this kind of context that I had not sufficiently, you know, thought through. And once I started to really come to see De Pareja in his own context, as it were, to try and get into his own perspective, I realized that. It was simply that I couldn't see some of the moves that he was making. Yeah, I mean, he's not going to be, you know, Kerry James Marshall or Robert Colescott. He's, you know, more of a Phyllis Wheatley-like figure. In a sense, in a sense. But to me, one of the things that's very important, and this is sort of where I come out in the essays, that I say, you know, at the end of the day, it's not simply about reproducing the, you know, master-slave dialectic, but it's rather that a different perspective actually affords, you know, a shaft of light, a beam into some aspect of the human experience that someone else might not have. And that no one, in fact, has the totalizing gaze, the totalizing view. And so, of course, Velázquez is a great master. He's a great, he'll always be a great master of painting. And to a certain extent, it's not, I'm not even arguing that De Pareja is as great a painter as Velázquez. But what I'm saying is, is that there are things that Velázquez could see and understand that De Pareja couldn't. But there are also things that De Pareja can see. He has a vision of the world, and in particular, an understanding of the relationship between vocation and freedom, between what it means to make art and what it means to kind of self-fashion right? And, and even just a kind of ontological conception of freedom that Velasquez is painting, you know, for all, you know, for all of its greatness, never, you never get that sense. He has no conception of that. You write in your conclusion to the essay that the hand of the slave who wields the master's tools inevitably transforms them. New keys can unlock new doors that open onto unsuspected basements. Velasquez had the tools of a master. He didn't have the vision of a slave. Now, interestingly, as you point out, De Pareja appears in one of Velasquez's most famous paintings, Las Meninas, uh, which is the subject of the uh, opening chapter of Foucault's uh, book, The Order of Things, and yet Foucault never mentions him. Yeah, you know, and I think this was also, you know, of course, in it a bit I wouldn't even say in the back of my mind, but this is part of what I was grappling with. And in a sense, the essay 
you know, I'm, 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 I'm wanting for Depareja to wrestle with Velasquez, but I'm also wrestling with Foucault here a little bit. And what I'm trying to, again, suggest in a kind of parallel fashion is that for all of, you know, the powerful framework and the very powerful insights um, that, have, that have come down to us, you know, from the order of things and from Foucault's great works, there are also these very interesting blind spots, right? And again, part of what I'm saying is, look, I've learned a great deal from reading Foucault. And, uh, you know, I've, you know, in a sense, like De Pereja, right, absorbed to a certain extent the lessons of the master. But it's also important to see that, you know, my vision of the world the angle that I come at things, I might see some things that he he doesn't see, right? And when I say, you know, I, I don't mean just me personally, uh, you know, Jesse McCarthy, the essayist, but I'm suggesting actually like, in a sense, an entire new, you know, wave of criticism and of critics, I mean, you know, who are working um, today and who are, I think, changing the way we have conversations about, race and art and culture and politics. And it seems to me the argument that you make about the transformation of the tools by the person uh, who is a subject or, or who has experienced subjugation is in, in some sense the uh, the story of uh, Black American literature. When you think about Du Bois's relationship to the Western philosophical tradition or Richard Wright's relationship to Dostoevsky or Baldwin's relationship to Henry James. I mean, or you'd never mistake uh, Toni Morrison for Faulkner, and yet she's clearly drawing upon and transforming uh, those tools. No, I think that's completely right. You know, it's interesting. We, we've sort of had just recently this, um, I don't want to call it a, a scandal, let's say an uproar, uh, because Howard University, which is an extremely important historically black university um, here in the United States, had moved to eliminate its classics program. Drawing a protest from Cornell West. Drawing protests from Cornell West, but also drawing protests from the black student unions and black student groups at Howard. That's to say, you know, th- this is not actually something that was endorsed or pushed by the students, uh, you know, counter to some of the people who wanted to frame it as an issue of quote unquote cancel culture. But at the same time, you know, one of the things that I think it might have been Eddie Glaude who mentioned it at one point, he was being interviewed or asked about this question. He pointed out, you know, Toni Morrison, who went to Howard University, you know, what did she major in? She majored in classics, right? And that comes as no surprise to anybody who's a serious reader of her work because her work is infused with that uh, background and that learning. And in some ways, the analogy that I'm making here is it's very apt. That is to say that, you know, uh, there's a, particularly in Beloved, but also in many of the other fictions, there's a strong sense of her reworking and in some sense reinstating tragedy as a form that is a native to her own needs, ends, and experiences. And I think that um, that's a, that's a sort of you know, a magnificent example of precisely this notion that I'm getting at of as soon as you pick up the tool, you actually change it. And that change, as I say, is accompanied by a vision. And, and, you know, that different vision has a whole suite of implications that are aesthetic, that are ethical, and also, of course, political. I think this is probably why the great painter Kerry James Marshall uh, titled his exhibition at the Met Breuer, Mastery. That's right. But I want to talk about another master, Gil Scott Heron, because it's from Gil Scott Heron that you derive the title of your book, Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul. It's also the title of one of the essays in the book, which is a thought-provoking and very searching critique of the argument for material reparations for slavery. You're not unsympathetic to the demand, or for that matter persuaded by some of the glib attacks on the idea of reparations, and yet you suggest that Gil Scott Heron puts his finger on a problem that reparations just can't address. Can you unpack that a bit? First of all, I mean, you know, Gil Scott Heron um, was an artist that, um, you know, I've been listening to for a very long time. Uh, His record, um, Small Talk at 125th and Lennox, was one of these records that I had as as a teenager. 
And, you know, I've listened to it over and over again. And he was sort of one of the, um, one of the people who, who kindled an early interest in, um, in poetry, for example. And I always loved this particular song, Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul. And so I always had that, you know, that refrain in the back of my mind. And when it came time to, to, um, to think of a title for the, for the book, it seemed like a, a natural fit to me, um, in no small part because Gil Scott Heron, who's in many ways, you know, kind of cons- considered sort of a sort of a godfather to the uh, you know rap and hip hop movement, because of his role as kind of bridge, a kind of spoken word artist, bridging kind of the spoken word tradition, kind of the last poets, um, but also kind of working with hip hop artists later, including even Kanye West. They collaborated at one point, but also someone who is you know famous for his kind of intellectualism and his, you know, his engagé politics. And so this was somebody who, for me, you know, the the kind of constellation of interests were the constellation of interests that I want, that I see as kind of at the core of the, of the book, at the core of the collection as a whole. The only problem is that, you know, once you have the word reparations in the title, uh, I think, you know, I worry that a lot of people are going to be disappointed because they pick up the book thinking maybe that they're going to get, you know, uh, like a knockdown argument in the debate about reparations. And in a sense, I'm actually not that interested in kind of um, in the debate, in the kind of positioning, you know, are you for or against reparations? You know, give me the knockdown argument. I'm actually much more interested in complicating the question as such um, and really asking what I think are some important underlying questions about, you know, what could ever constitute r- repair? What could ever constitute redress? What are the terms that are appropriate or inappropriate um, for thinking through um, how you fix something of that order, of that magnitude? Something that really can't be fixed, even if material reparations were ever given. That's right. Wouldn't that also suggest that the problem has been, quote unquote, solved, which would also be an illusion? I think that's exactly right. And so when I initially, you know, wrote this essay, it was as a response to Ta-Nehisi Coates's now sort of classic article essay in uh, The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations. And again, I think I should make clear because, you know, too often, sometimes it can feel in the public sphere as if black intellectuals are sort of pitted against each other. And that's always been, it's been very important to me always, even when I have disagreements, and I have disagreements, sometimes sharp disagreements, that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in taking anybody out, taking anyone down. I have enormous respect for Ta-Nehisi Coates as a writer, as a, as a thinker, as an intellectual. And I think that he did an enormous service to the conversation by writing that piece. This is one of the qualities I really admire in these essays, Jesse, uh, which is that you're not a polemicist. Uh, it seems to me that you're, you're more interested in what Deleuze called lines of flight than in exposing someone or calling them to account. No, that's absolutely right. And so for this is a, a perfect example where, on the one hand, I'm perfectly happy to agree with folks who think there should be some form of material reparations. But what I want to do is interrogate what I think is a kind of underlying, you know, logical and ethical problem here, which is that as I see it, you know, once you, as I say, sometimes to be glib, I say to people, you know, well, go ahead and put a, put a dollar amount on it. You know, and once I ask you to put a dollar amount on your ancestors, I think you start to get a little uncomfortable. And I want to rest with that discomfort. I want to interrogate that. Why does it make you so a little bit uncomfortable to put a dollar amount on how much, you know, you're, that, that is worth? And, and I think that to me, that's where we get to this underlying thing of isn't, I mean, wasn't that the original sin, quote unquote, to put dollar amounts on human beings? To imagine that human life is fungible, right, and quantifiable, and that we can simply deal with problems through transactionality. So basically, kind of responding to the historical commodification of Black people by recommodifying them. That's right, and 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 in a sense, you know, what what I'm interested in is asking the question of well, what about all the ways in which I might say, you know. The things that were done that were wrong 
I refuse the, that currency of redress, right? I don't accept that I can be paid off for it in the currency that you can also use to buy a car or that you can also use to buy a house or whatever the case may be. I think there's something of a different order that's involved here. And it's an example that I wish I, I had included in the essay, uh, but I wasn't actually aware of it at the time, but that I use when I discuss this now a lot. In 1868, William T. Sherman actually signed a treaty with the Sioux Nation to protect the Black Hills, which they considered a sacred land to them as a tribe. But and as was with the case with so many of those quote-unquote Indian treaties, within 10 years, settlers had violated the tre- terms of the treaty, occupied the lands, exploited them for resources, and the Sioux Nation lost control over the, the sacred ground that is uh, of, ter- you know, of terrible importance to them as a people. Well, you fast forward after the, in part because of the insurgency of the American Indian movement in the 1970s, in 1980, there's actually a a case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court takes up this question of the violation of uh, the Treaty of Fort Laramie, 1868, and they find in favor of the Sioux Nation. Mm. And they say, you know, you know, this was wrong. The government had no right to, to, they violated a good faith treaty the Sioux Nation must be awarded damages. And the U.S. Treasury established a fund for reparations for the Sioux Nation. And they put, I think it was $130 million or something in this pot. The Sioux Nation refused the money. Today, that pot is worth well over a billion dollars. It's been collecting interest over the decades. The Sioux Nation refuses to take it. Now, maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. We can have various arguments. But my point is that very act of refusal is the one that I want us to think about. You know, I want us to rest and think about what it means when people say to you, you know what? What I asked for was my sacred land. And that is not a fungible thing. That's not up for trading. That's your value system, not ours. Exactly. You know, your whole book, I think, turns on a series of questions that you pose in your introduction. Uh, You write... What do people owe each other when debts accrued can never be repaid? What role does culture play in a society governed in such a way that its historical inequalities are continually reproduced and widened and its moral insolvency perpetually renewed? What do those owed nevertheless owe to each other? And what possible role can art or literature play under those conditions? You know, this is the thing. I think I think many people right now can feel that we're we're in a moment of crisis. But in a sense, particularly from a, an African-American perspective, we've always been in a moment of crisis. What I think feels more particular about the moment that we're in is that so many people feel a sense of rudderlessness. They feel a sense of hopelessness. There's a great deal of despair. There's also a great deal There's this kind of feeling that we've reached a kind of aporia. We've reached this impasse. And it, there's this sense that we're just, we're stuck in neutral. And one of the things that I think I'm trying to do is to suggest that, you know, culture can't solve things. But then again, I'm not sure anything can quote unquote solve things. I think that we have, as Americans, we have this desire, we have this pragmatism. We, I mean, I think in reparations comes out of this impulse. We're like, can't we just, can I just sign a bill? Can I just send somebody a check and then we'll be good? We'll move on, right? When life doesn't work like that? Yeah, in that sense, a, a lack of feeling for the kind of tragedy that Morrison is reinstating. This sunny kind of solutionism. Exactly. Solutionism which is so false and so shallow. And I think here culture has a role to play because in a sense, culture has a longer time horizon. It looks forward. It looks backward. It's uh, a connective tissue. And it reminds us of other orders of value, right? For example, the tragic, but also the comic I would call it sort of the earthy sort of perseverance of the blues. Or Afrofuturism with its other planes of there, as uh, Sun Ra used to say. That's right. And, and, you know, acts of radical speculation, right? But it's always about tapping into orders of value that are not uh, necessarily, that don't necessarily feel tangible in, in the order that you walk outside and encounter every day, right? And 
I don't want this to sound facile, like, you know, well, we just have these resources to reimagine and it's sort of this well. I mean, I, I think it actually is that. But it's also that culture is what human beings necessarily make together. There, it, is a, it is, by definition, a kind of collective endeavor and, and it imposes and implies collective meanings and destinies. And I think that part of what I'm interested in, and this is getting to a kind of meta argumentative level here, but I feel like both in our politics, in our intellectual discourse and conversations for, let's say, the last 40 years, there's been a process that, you know, we might broadly call one of kind of deconstruction. There's been a phase of critique of a lot of the kind of dominant assumptions that, um, you know, the, the dominant sort of hegemonic Western powers held and that held fast sort of up until the 60s, roughly, let's say. And I think that that phase of deconstruction was incredibly important. And I think it was historically necessary. That is to say, I don't think there was any way to avoid the kinds of reckonings that happened there as violent, as unpleasant, as disturbing, but also as exciting, as revolutionary, and as emancipatory as they all were. But I also think that that orientation, that deconstructive approach is beginning to look exhausted. And you can tell that, I think, in part because um, those who oppose it already anticipate it now. There's a way in which it's almost, I, I would say, sort of too easily countered. And also to some extent because of its insertion into bureaucracies, the kind of sterile aspects of this uh, deconstructive move. Absolutely. You, you, you could say that in a sense it's sort of been institutionalized and, and rendered, you know, rendered perhaps even a little bit formulaic. The culture, in a sense, has absorbed it, I think, and, um, and comprehended it, therefore taking its radical edge off. And it's my view, and, I, you know, again, I could be wrong, but it's, 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 it's sort of how I approach things, at least at the moment, is that I think that we're in, in a kind of in-between moment where we're, sh- we're trying to shift out of a phase of deconstruction into what I like to think of as a moment of reconstruction. And for me, the important echo there is, of course, historical. That is, uh, uh, the reconstruction of, uh, of, of the 1870s, the reconstruction that ought to have brought freedom and equality to African Americans in the United States, but was violently opposed and overthrown and therefore never, you know, never took place, never could fulfill its ambitions. The aborted revolution. That's right. The aborted revolution, which was picked up again in the civil rights movement and again violently opposed and in many ways uh, undermined and sapped from within and, you know, and and has left us where we are, where once again, we are at this kind of impasse and we have to face the fact that the work of reconstruction is yet to be done and that we can't have this backwards look of, oh, but we did the civil rights movement. And so now we, you know, we just have to iron out the wrinkles or something. No, we, <laughs> this is not about ironing out some wrinkles. We actually still have to undertake the wholesale rebuilding of a culture that is properly integrated, of a socio-political order that is just, uh, of a society where the, the genuine kind of plurality of um, needs and voices and interests that make America, you know, the, the American nation so, uh, you know, so interesting and so compelling, so exciting to so many people, though in many ways very nightmarish for many of the people who live in it, that they, that, that can be properly given uh, um, what I think is ultimately its, its historical, you know, uh, direction. And, and this is sort of also, my thing is that, you know, the momentum, I think, is there. You know, I think people, you know, we always have these debates. You know, I, I think the momentum, the, the line of momentum is clear. The question is, though, and maybe the harder realization, right, is that this is hard work. It involves a lot of effort. It involves doing things that we don't really want to do. We're not even really good at as human beings in a certain kind of way. Self-examination is not actually our strongest suit. 
uh, delusion is uh, for the best of us, including intellectuals, right, is actually oftentimes what we're best at. And so, you know, this is this has been this has been an arduous an arduous road, and we're probably not even close. Uh, but I do think that I, I hope that we can turn to the culture that we have already produced, that we are producing right now, and that the kind of culture that I see on the horizon, I think, I think a lot of the keys are there. And part of what I'm always very invested in is making sure that people are taking that culture seriously, because unfortunately, one of the legacies of white supremacy in the United States is that far too often, that culture is not actually taken seriously. It's not taken seriously at, at a kind of intellectual level, at a critical level. It's, it's you know, too often dismissed or given a kind of shallow treatment um, when, in fact, I think there are incredibly important messages. Uh, you know, messages was a, was a word that Du Bois was, was very fond of, that, the, you know, that, that Black people had a message um, for the world. And I think that, you know, people... Even people of good faith sometimes think that they're listening, but, you know, as James Baldwin says, far too often, they're not actually hearing, though. They're not actually listening to the message. You started writing these essays in 2014, around the time of the murder of Michael Brown and the protest in Ferguson. Uh, By the time you wrote your preface last summer, George Floyd had been kneed to death in America, had seen the largest wave of street protests in the country's history. Now, These essays take full stock of the horror, the mourning, the anger that have spread through black America, but they're also, I think, defiantly hopeful, and not just because of the birth of Black Lives Matter and other acts of resistance, but because of what you were just describing, this flourishing of black art making in all fields. You write at one point, it's not unreasonable to speculate that we may even have been living through what future generations will look back on as something like a second renaissance. There are certainly echoes of the black arts movement of the 60s and 70s, too, uh, though it's less programmatic and certainly less patriarchal in its politics. You know, it's worth remembering, of course, that, you know, the years of the Renaissance um, in terms of race relations were very violent ones in terms of lynching, in terms of race riots. Race riots in in those days were, were very often mobs of of white Americans attacking uh, blacks. You can think about, for example, what happened in Tulsa, right, 1921. So you look at the black arts movement, right? The background to that moment of very intense cultural energies and flourishing was also a time of great political violence and upheaval, assassination, the Black Panthers, very violent and repressive state violence. You know, in many ways, even though what we've been living through has been, you know, extremely brutal. If you if you actually look at the the figures in a certain sense, uh, even though that's a kind of not always, I think, the best way to think about things. But but you know, the violence of the '60s and the '70s uh, was 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 just extraordinarily brutal. I mean, you know, in some ways far worse than what we've experienced. And throughout these periods, these were these were moments of of, of, of cultural ferment and you know great advancements in the arts. And I think you see something similar happening today. And I think that, you know, this is, this is sort of one of the things that, that, that I'm suggesting, which is that, in a sense, human beings respond, they respond with the entirety of their being. And we understand better than ever that, you know, one particular bill passing or, you know, getting one particular person in office or getting one particular party an electoral vic- victory over another is not going to solve our problems. It's not right. Uh, just as the conviction of Derek Chauvin is not going to end police brutality any more than Barack Obama's election ended racism. That's right. And so there are so many dimensions of our lives that are not going to be addressed by just by just the the, the formally political in that sense, right? Um, the spiritual needs of people. Um, the emotional trials and, and, and tribulations, the expressive reaction to, 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 you know, to pain, to injustice, but also, uh, you know, our the kind of paradoxes, if you will, of the enormous 
pleasures and joys that we also, you know, experience at the very same moment, right? Um, these, these are things that, you know, we, I think, handle as human beings in the realm of culture. And I think that's, that's both inevitable and, you know, one of the beautiful things about, about human beings. Uh, it's one of the great, I mean, thank goodness that we have that. But, you know, I have to say, you know, when, when the Chauvin uh, a verdict came in, you know, to be honest, one of the things that I was thinking about was, uh, you know, I was thinking about Breonna Taylor, you know, and I was thinking about the fact that and this ties in a little bit to, um, you know, one of the points that I'm making in the book, why the difference there, right? Why no justice for her? Um, but in this case, we got a conviction. And, and, you know, underlying it, there's this kind of bitter reality, which is that, you know, one of the signal differences in, in, the, in, in these two situations was just the position of the attorney general. And so in, in, one, in one case, you have an attorney general who is interested in bringing charges. The, uh, in the United States, uh, for your listeners who are in the UK, the, the, you're talking about Keith Ellison. That's right, Keith Ellison. But, but the position of the attorney general in the United States is an elected position. In other words, the person who administers justice in our society is also someone who has explicitly sort of political, you know, and personal interests. And, um, you know, there's a question mark about whether that's the best way to really administer justice, but it is the way our system currently works. And unfortunately, in Breonna Taylor's case, you had, I think his name was David Cameron, you had a, a black but Republican attorney general who everyone knew. From the get, in the same way that everyone knew that Keith Ellison was going be, for political reasons. I mean, essentially. I mean, I'm not saying that he wasn't personally and ethically, you know, otherwise invested in, in doing so, but you know, there was never any question that he would um, break charges. And Keith Ellison has spent his entire political career as a social justice warrior. That's right. So it was a sort of it was foregone conclusion that he would that that there would at least be a trial. In Brianna Taylor's, it was it was a foregone conclusion that she wouldn't even get a trial. But to the point of my title, if you will, it's my understanding, and I, ho- I may not be getting the figures exactly right here, but it's my understanding that her family was awarded in a civil suit reparations, uh, you know, in damages, as it were. And I think it was to the tune of 11 or $12 million. But I think, honestly, if you ask Brianna Taylor's family, if you ask uh, her, her loved one who was there that night, if you ask the activists and all the people who have been fighting so hard on her behalf and for so many others like her who who go unnamed in the public sphere because their cases didn't quite make it, you know, sufficiently high into the into the media radar, but there there are many of them. Any one of us, any of those people would in the blink of an eye take a trial over 12 million dollars. Because that's not the money is not what we wanted. The money does not make it right. The money does, she's, her life isn't worth $12 million, right? You can't put a dollar price on that woman's life. We can't be satisfied with handouts and then just a perpetuated scene of injustice that we know will be allowed to repeat itself because there's been no holding to account when, and there's this kind of impunity that, that surrounds, uh, you know, this exercise of violence. And so, you know, this to me is exactly my point when I say in my essay on reparations, what we really need to be thinking about is this uh, uh, notion that, you know, um, the political theorist Philip Pettit um, at Princeton, but there are many others, you know, widely discuss the notion out of really Roman political thought and jurisprudence, but, you know, it, it's, it was ostensibly important to uh, the foundational political structure of the United States, but of republicanism with a little r, not the big r of the political party, but which found which was founded in a very important way on this notion of non-domination. That is to say that every person, every subject of the state, one the, the most important feature of that state in order for it to be meeting its responsibilities as a republic, if it wants to call itself that, is precisely that the subject must uh, and citizen must never be uh, subjected to random uh, violence or coercive power by the state. And what do we see in in Black Lives today? I mean, it, this is 
emblematic of the of the terrible situation mass incarceration police brutality and so on and and these of course are at the center of the discussion today around abolition around defunding the police um and it seems to me uh, jesse that your book is is also a very stimulating and probing response to one of the most powerful intellectual currents uh, that have arisen in black studies. I'm talking about Afro-pessimism. Uh, you understand and you evoke the allure, even the seductiveness of Afro-pessimism, which is not so much a school of thought as a, as a mood, you suggest. And yet, in the end, you, you really mark your distance from Afro-pessimism. Yeah, that's right. I would say this is another example, you know, of, you know, a case where, you know, I, I'm interested in engaging with what I regard to be some of the most exciting intellectual work that's being done today. Cydia Hartman and Fred Moten receive uh, very admiring attention in your book. Right. And, and I would say that, you know, Afro-pessimism as, a, as an intellectual movement that is cl- very closely uh, associated with, you know, Frank Wilderson, Jared Sexton, David Marriott, and many others, is an intellectual movement that, again, I think is has been extraordinarily useful and important. I think that, you know, I have my disagreements with it, but at the same time, I'm extraordinarily grateful to these people for having done the work that they've done and that they're continuing to do. And I hope that people, you know, one of the ways in which I tried to, to organize the essay, which was an, initially a review of Wilderson's book entitled Afro-Pessimism, um, and which sort of lays out in a kind of autobiographical or, or Auto theory is sort of, I think, his word for the kind of auto theory kind of way. His ideas, um, in part through the lens of his own life. I, you know, part of what I wanted to do was actually to make sure that you know that book got seriously considered in the public sphere and and got you know and that those ideas were circulated. And that I tried as best as I could, um, and to my own understanding, to to articulate in good faith, you know, those arguments. And I think they're important. And and, and I'll, I'll say this really quickly. The ways in which Afro-pessimism in particular has forced people to think about anti-blackness in particular, when so much theorizing and theoretical discourse in the academy, but not exclusive to the academy, has, I think, often tiptoed or danced around anti-blackness, that's been extraordinarily productive and important. The ways in which Wilderson is, is interested in thinking about blackness and the quote, you know, the black as the sort of dialectical opposite of the human, of the human being, right? These are, these are really important for us to grapple with. So I'm not interested, as it were, again, in kind of dismissing, you know, it's not about making a knockdown argument. I hope people will go out and read that work. At the same time, where I think I'm interested in adding my own voice to that conversation is that I do think that in, in my reading and in my view, there are a couple of things. One is that there's an enormous, uh, I would say very, very deep connection, which all of these theorists would acknowledge. Um, there's a deep connection to readings of the work of France Fanon. And, you know, this, you know, this gets into the life of intellectuals. But, you know, I have disagreements with the way in which they interpret that work um, with, with Afro-pessimism. But then underlying that, and I think at a more uh, at a more important level, I really think that it's important. I think there's a long-standing tr- tradition, if I can put it this way, of insurgent black thought that has sometimes, I think, unfairly and unjustly been packaged into this, you know, I don't know, school of hope or optimism and is therefore vulnerable always to this kind of critique of naivete. Oh, these people, you know, are, oh, they just don't sufficiently understand how bad things really are. They're not willing to take the overpowering ontological, you know, condition seriously enough. They're not. And, you know, and I I always think, you know, it doesn't, it just doesn't, it just doesn't ring true to me. It doesn't fit with actually what I hear in those voices. And also in some of the great black thinkers and writers, you can find flashes of both despair and insurgent hope. Uh, you could read Baldwin as an Afro-pessimist or as an Afro-optimist, and the same is true of Franz Fanon. Yeah, I think that, well, that's certainly true. That's certainly true. It, you know, it, don't, it, it depends <laughs> to some extent what paragraph you happen to be looking at. 
But I also think, and this is where, you know, to a certain extent, I'm putting my cards a little bit on the table in the sense of articulating, you know, what my own politics are, which is that, you know, I'm very, I've always been very taken with, with David Walker's appeal. One of the reasons I'm interested in Walker's work is that, you know, it's, it's, it's not original by, by any means to, to think of him as kind of one of, one of the founding kind of figures who articulates, you know, an early version of black nationalism, especially in, in the U.S. context. But I think that Walker's text is extremely attuned, um, as Fred Moten uh, and others have paid, have paid close attention to. You know, Walker is extremely attuned to abjection, uh, you know, to what he describes as the wretched state, the most wretched, uh, you know, you know, people uh, that the world and world history has ever known. Right, he's not by any stretch of the imagination somebody who's sort of looking at things through rose-tinted glasses. This is not a naive thinker, and yet at the same time, it's Walker who says to us, and here he's arguing against the emigrationists. He's arguing against those who faced with the kind of implacable violence of white supremacy. We're talking about the eight, you know, the, uh, who seek to flee, seek to flee, and essentially to say and and to abandon the ship. You know, there's this this we have to get out. This is the 1820s, right? Extraordinarily violent time. In this moment, in the moment of 1828, 29, when he's composing and publishing the appeal, he has this ability to say, "This country is more ours." And by ours, he means specifically African Americans. He says, this country is more ours than it is the whites, right? He says, we've put our blood and our tears into the soil and we will not, we will not be moved, right? You will not, uh, we will not, we will never allow you to make that pain, that sacrifice, that endurance. We will never allow that extraordinary sacrifice and experience to be rendered null, right? We claim that. We claim that as part of our identity. And we insist that this nation must be made right for us. And this is what I'm always trying, you know, it's something that I'm... I'm, I'm, Right, and that this abjection is not just a part of our history, it's a part of your history. And, and, And you find echoes of this argument... In, in Ellison and Albert Murray and Baldwin in Toni Morrison. Oh, absolutely. And I think, but one of the things that I'm at pains to say to folks is you have to understand that the African-American, and you know, I'm saying that specifically because you, you, Walker himself already has a really rich, you know, understanding of diasporic blackness. But African-Americans in particular have long understood that we have, you know, we, we have this extraordinary background. There's a part of us that has a, a kind of built-in spiritual worldliness because we, under, we understand ourselves as descendants of Africa, but also in a sense, because of the slave trade, not only of Africa, right? I mean, blackness was spread globally. Uh, the, the, you know, the Arab slave trade spread blackness into the Indian Ocean. You know, you know, the vast majority of Africans were deported to Brazil, right, and to into Latin America, Latin and Central America. Extraordinary black populations in Mexico, and of course, most importantly, perhaps uh, uh, in certain respects, the Caribbean, right? Haiti, of course, Jamaica, and go on and on. So we have this kind of built-in worldliness, but we also, specifically as African Americans, understand that our situation in captivity in a white supremacist republic with its deeply conflicted and confused, you know, enlightenment ideals has placed us in a situation where we don't have some other place to fall back to. We have to make it work here. And so when people enter into defeatist modes of argumentation and um, defeatist modes of you know, throwing one's hands up in the air. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of black folk who say, you know, 
that's not a position that folks who have children can afford to adopt because we yeah. want we want something better for them. I think that we have a profound sense of our relationship to those people who got us to where we are. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, things being owed and we talk about all of this stuff, I think a lot of African-Americans feel a great sense, a very deep sense of obligation and responsibility to the people who somehow got through what they had to get through for us to even be around. And I think there's a part of us that considers that and thinks, you know, we can't allow for that effort to not be given meaning. We can't allow for that sacrifice, that endurance, that perseverance to not be transmitted forward. We can't be, we, it can't be that all of these generations have done what they had to do. And then it got to us and we just said, ah, you know, well, it's, you know, you know, white people, what can you do? You look at the structural problems, it'll never change. The best, you know, the best thing we can do is just kind of huddle together and wait for the end of the world and, you know, kind of move into a mode of kind of almost theological resignation. You know, maybe in the next life. No, no. I think I think we feel that you know, Du Bois had this conviction that regarded in a certain light part of what had happened in the, in to black people in the United States of America was the emergence of what he called a world historical people. And yes, there's a kind of way in which this imposes a you know kind of teleology that I know you know we feel frustrated by and and people. You know, I think are rightfully, you know, often frustrated with sort of the politics and certainly the sort of kind of cultural politics of uplift and all of that. Uh, but at the same, you know, at the same time, at the same time, a myth can be false and also quite useful. A myth can be false and useful, but it's also true that an enormous amount was achieved. You know, and we're and, and black people are enormously proud of the things that we have achieved. We're enormously proud of our culture. We're enormously proud of our, of our artists, of our intellectuals, of our thinkers, of our philosophers. Uh, we're also enormously proud of ordinary, everyday men, women, children, young people who have, in, you know, who have borne incredible burdens and also, you know, built and rebuilt communities. I, I, you know, I, I say to people, you know, they, people talk about Tulsa, you know, which was this absolutely terrifying massacre, uh, destruction of an entire black neighborhood destroyed precisely because it was successful. It was thriving. It had a, 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 a kind of great, great center of black business. But part of that story that is sometimes not emphasized and not told is that within a few years, Black Tulsa, that black business district, had been rebuilt by black people, by the same people. And, you know, and that, I guess I'm always at pains to say, you know, I'm not trying to say that, I'm not trying by any stretch of the imagination to de-emphasize that moment of violence. And, and to the extent that people are ignorant of that, that they don't know that history, that they don't understand that this is what people have been up against, you don't understand the country. But let's not forget that response and let's not forget that resilience. The response and the resilience have merit and also need to be voiced. And they have significance. They have significance. And the fact of the matter is that it might be that when you look at U.S. history, you step back and look at it, at its you know broad structure, you do see that there, you know, much of the dialectic driving its history is the problem of race, the question of these people, of these people of African descent and their place in this society. So many of our historical crises, almost all of them really, <laughs> have been articulated around this problem. And you could say that that suggests that there is this sense in which we are 
it's true that we are the victims of this situation, but the curious thing is that we are simultaneously the victims and in the driving seat of history. And the history and fate of the nation does turn on how we work out this problem. And I mean, if this seems obvious, I mean, if you just, just look at what we've gone through in the last, you know, few weeks, the last couple of years, I mean, it's so strange to me that, that we try so hard to avoid what is so self-evident. Jesse, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you about this remarkable collection of essays. Thanks so much for being my guest on the LRB podcast. Thanks, Adam. This has been great. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.